With God's help, if you would turn your hearts to the Lord's word as I read. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. There are certain scenes in the Bible where the idea of making haste figures large, where we see running uh, to see or to tell what the Lord has done, uh, just uh, a major, being a major part of what gets the story going. You have, for example, the Gerizim demoniac, that man who was oppressed by legion uh, because there were so many demons uh, possessing him and Christ delivered him. He, He set that man free and the shepherds in the area were just astonished at what they witnessed and observed because they were, they were used to seeing this man naked and living among tombs. At times he was kept under guard, bound in shackles and chains, but, but now he had encountered Christ and he was a new man. And so these herdsmen, these shepherds, they saw it and they fled they ran, and they, they told, the Bible says, it in the city and in the country. They went everywhere to tell of what Jesus had done, and people in turn came from far and wide to see what the Lord had done, and they, they came and they witnessed this man sitting and clothed at the feet of Jesus and in his right mind. And then that man in turn went off and he went proclaiming through the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. 
John chapter 20 is another uh, passage that immediately springs to mind where Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ while it's still dark, only to find that it's empty. And so what does she do? She runs. And she runs and she she goes and she tells Simon Peter and, and the other disciple whom Jesus loves, who we of course know to be the Apostle John, the one who's writing the, the account. And um, they find out about this, this good news and they take off running. And John says, well, they came and they, they, they were running together, but the other disciple, John, he outran Peter. And he got to the tomb first. Well, you have the same kind of idea here in our passage today. You have that same sense of enthusiasm and urgency. Here it's on the other side of Jesus' life at the announcement of his conception. Mary arose and she went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah where Zechariah and, and Elizabeth were living. It wasn't a leisurely stroll. It was hurried excitement. Now, why? Why did she leave with haste? Well, faith was spurring her on. Faith in the word of God, what the Lord had spoken to her, put her feet in motion. They set her very life into action. The word of God had come to her that she would bear the Messiah. This child who, who she was carrying was the promised one, God's own son, the one who would grow up to sit on David's throne and of his kingdom, there would be no end. She'd also heard that the Lord had worked in uh, the womb of her relative Elizabeth, this one who was advanced in years, her who was called barren, and Mary had to take off. What choice did she have but to go and see what the Lord had done and to tell it in turn of what God had spoken to her herself? So it's here that these two stories that we have been tracing in, in parallel fashion intersect for the first time. And Mary gathers presumably whatever she needs and she hurriedly takes off. She makes this three or four day journey, probably about a hundred miles from Nazareth to the region outside Jerusalem. She gets to the threshold of Zechariah and Elizabeth's house. And it's interesting. If you look at verse 40, it says that Mary entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Her greeting is directed toward Elizabeth. We know from later in the chapter that not only was Zechariah mute, he was unable to speak, but he was also deaf. He couldn't hear. His family members had to, had to make signs to try to communicate with him. Now, whether it was because of, because of this or just because of the, the thrill of seeing Elizabeth advanced in years and great with child, Mary just seems to sidestep Zechariah. And she makes a beeline for Elizabeth. Now, what happens when she gets there? Well, as soon as Mary gets there, the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps at the greeting. And we don't get to hear the greeting. We don't know what Mary said, but Elizabeth interprets the leap within her own womb as a leap for joy, the Bible says. 
Now already that is significant. Already that frames for us the relationship between John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ. John leaps at the presence of Jesus Christ. He is excited when, when Jesus Christ comes in to the room, even in utero, even in the womb of his mother. You get a little preview here of what John is going to say some 30 years later as Christ is beginning his ministry. John says, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly. He rejoices greatly. So this is no ordinary somersault, ladies, uh, within the womb of Elizabeth. It's a prophetic sign pointing to the greatness of Jesus Christ. Well, John the Baptist leaps. Elizabeth shouts. She exclaims. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit And she exclaims with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now friends, I want you to think about this here. The stunning thing here is that as far as social convention is concerned, you would expect Mary to be the one offering the blessing to Elizabeth. Elizabeth is the elder woman. We don't know exactly how old, but she is old. She is advanced in years. She's barren. She's the daughter of Aaron. Uh, She is married to a priest. Mary, on the other hand, is a teenager. But it isn't Mary that pronounces the blessing on Elizabeth, it's Elizabeth, this elder woman, who pronounces the blessing on Mary. And look what Elizabeth says in verse 43. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? The filling of the Holy Spirit in the, 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 the heart and mind of Elizabeth grants her the discernment to perceive this is no ordinary child that, that Mary is carrying. The mother of Elizabeth's Lord has come to her. Now just mark this in your mind that from the moment of Christ's conception, he was Lord. The Lord of Lords had come to condescend, to take on flesh, to enter into the womb of a woman that he had created in order to redeem lost humanity from their estate. Hebrews 2 and verse 14 says, therefore, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's every one of us, apart from the intervention of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Lord 
in Mary's womb here. And it's the the work of the Spirit in Elizabeth's heart that enables her to acknowledge and to profess him as such. We might even say to possess him as such, to possess Jesus as her Lord, to give herself so fully, so readily to his lordship, to his kingly reign and authority. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 3 says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now what the Apostle Paul is saying there is not that we cannot just take the bare words to our lips, but that we cannot do what Elizabeth and Mary are doing here. We cannot submit ourselves to the Lordship of Christ. We cannot bow the heart before him. We cannot subject our lives before him in willing service apart from the the work of the Spirit within us. The Lordship of Jesus Christ is not something that we can understand. It's not something that we can even believe in and profess through human intellect. You don't come to Christ without the Holy Spirit. It's impossible to live the Christian life without the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Do you see evidence of the Spirit's work in your life? Not just that you take those words to your lips, but in a way that runs in parallel fashion to the lives of Mary and Elizabeth here, that your life is given over in willing, glad, happy submission to his lordship. Where is the spirit of God at work? It's wherever we see men and women abandoning their idols, living in submission in allegiance to Jesus Christ, following him in that happy obedience wherever he takes them to, proclaiming him openly, gladly, courageously as Lord to others, being transformed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another, to another, to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That's what Jesus told his disciples in John 16. When the spirit of truth comes, he will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You you have a glimmer of that here. The spirit is working to glorify Jesus. You also just notice the, the marvelous inexplicability of God's grace on Elizabeth's part. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? That sheer wonder on Elizabeth's part, simply of being privy to the grace of God, that sense of amazement she has. How should I find myself in this kind of position apart from the unmerited kindness of the Lord? How can this be? Keep going with me in verse 45. She continues her, her blessing and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Elizabeth praises Mary for the faith that she sees in here. Now there's two things I want you to notice. And I want to speak to the young people here first. To you young adults, children, students. Remember, 
Mary is probably somewhere between 13 to 15 years old here. And yet, here is a young woman who fears God. She walks in humility before him. She reverences his word. She puts her trust in what he says. When God speaks, Mary treasures up all these things. She ponders them in her heart. She is unflinching in her obedience. Her concern, young ones, is to please the Lord, to live her life in her own words as a servant of the Lord. And so you have this example of a strong, mature faith, even from a very early age. So let this be a challenge to your own faith. Don't think to yourself, well, I'll get serious about the things of God later on in life. The Bible says the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given us all assurance by raising him from the dead. So get serious now. Get serious about the Lord today. Take God at his word this very day. Begin to walk in faith, in love, and obedience to him. Now, I will exhort parents as well, especially those of you who still have young children living at home. Let it be marked in our minds that Mary did not just wind up this way. She is a product of discipleship. We're going to look at Mary's song in just a moment. And when we get there, I want you to notice just how scripturally saturated it is. It is filled, dripping with references and allusions to the Old Testament. Why is that? It's because her parents had discipled her. Her parents had taught her in the word. They had taken time. When you sit down, when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise, for Mary, the things of God was in the air that she breathed so that by the time that the, uh, the day came when the Lord visited her, that implanted word was already there. It was already working in her heart and mind. It was already inspiring, encouraging, stimulating her faith. Before Mary ever feared the Lord, her parents did. Before Mary ever walked in obedience to what God had said, her parents did. God uses means to draw our children to himself. We see here Elizabeth and Mary sharing in this common faith, this common Lord, common delight, and they are able to rejoice accordingly. The tail end of the passage says that Mary stayed with Elizabeth about three months. Uh, That would have taken us right about through the end of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And you, you just have to imagine what kind of joy they must have shared over those three months, reveling in what the Lord was doing, talking about the promises of God, spending time in Christian fellowship, praying together, a teenager and an elder woman in the church sharing fellowship. 
Now I would ask you, have you entered into what these women shared? Do you know something of that joy that we see them experiencing in this passage? Beloved, verse 45 is a truth that can be appropriated to every man, woman, and child in this room today. Blessed is the one who believed there'd be a fulfillment of what the Lord has spoken. That is still true today. To believe the word of God is to be in the place of blessing. To put your trust in what God has said in his word is to know the place where his favor is known. Now you have heard God's word. You know what he has spoken, but have you put your trust in it? Have you believed that there would be a fulfillment of it, that there has been a fulfillment of it in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he has come into the world to live a sinless life, that he was offered up on the cross, that he suffered and died, he was laid in a tomb, that he was raised for our justification and that he will come again so that where he is, we may be also Do you believe that? Do you trust in what God has said? I am not talking today about intellectual assent. I'm not asking whether you don't deny that these events have transpired, but is your personal faith in his person and work so that you can say with Elizabeth, he is my Lord. He is my Lord. Have you entered into this blessing? Do you know the joy that penetrated Mary and Elizabeth's heart? And so we come to Mary's song. Elizabeth pronounces the blessing. Mary bursts into praise. Now friends, there is a danger. Whenever we are looking at poetry, whenever... You're in my position and you're preaching a song. We don't know that this was actually sung, but uh, it is certainly poetic. There is a danger that in your analysis of its content and, your, and its structure that you just, you lose the, the, the beauty and the drama of the thing. This is poetry. It is designed to stir our hearts and to take to our lips, not to lay on a table and to to tediously dissect in some kind of sterile environment. So I'm hoping that as we walk through this, that we can get a sense of its themes, that we can see what gave rise to this song in the first place. What are we meant to feel as we sing it? You know, music has an effect on you, doesn't it? The different, whatever, different styles of music have different effects on you. What you listen to, young people, shapes the way you think and the way you feel. What kind of effect is this meant to have on us? The thing that stands out at the beginning is just how jubilant it is. Right from the get-go, there are some songs that start off slowly and they... 
They gradually crescendo and build and swell until you get to a major theme, some kind of climax. This isn't one of them. It starts off on a high note and it stays there the entire way through. It's exuberant and it arises from the innermost place of the heart where all true worship springs from. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. You see the place that the praise comes from. It's deep within the soul. This is not lip service. This is not ritual or routine. She is giving vent to her soul. Her spirit is rejoicing. We're going to see a lot of truth in what follows. There is a lot of doctrine here, but there's more than just doctrine. There are a lot of people in the church today who are very concerned with doctrinal fidelity, and rightly so, but they're, they're wary of anything that, that involves the emotions or the affections. And there's good reason for that because, because the, um, the emotions, the affections, they can be manipulated, they can be stirred in all sorts of artificial ways. But brothers and sisters, where the self-revelation of God is at the center of our relationship with him, it captures both the mind and the heart. The intellect is filled with truth, but the heart is also ignited with passion for the things of God. And it flows out in our worship, Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. So there is experiential fervor here. Right doctrine has not simply been filed away in the mind. It has been received in the soul so that the heart is aflame with ardor and love for the Lord. There is zeal according to knowledge. Brothers and sisters, you can take true words to your lips. You can sing the glories of God. You can tell of his excellent greatness and you can do all of that with the greatest skill. But until your soul magnifies the Lord, you have never offered true worship to him. Jesus said the hour is coming and is now here where true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Mary understood that. She said, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Her praise was not a duty fulfilled. It was the bubbling up of a heart that had at the center of its delight the Lord God himself. And you can see that it is oh so personal for her. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, my soul magnifies the Lord. What is it to magnify the Lord? We were talking on Wednesday night about the James Webb uh, space telescope. Some of you will have seen some of the, the images that have come back over the last week or so um, from, from that telescope. There have been some just simply astounding pictures of God's handiwork on display. One of them I mentioned 
represents the size of a grain of sand uh, held at arm's length. That's the kind of slice of the universe you're looking at. And in that infinitesimally small slice of the universe, there are thousands upon thousands of universes you can see, or of galaxies, in stunning detail. Now, church, they're not any bigger than they ever have been, but they're bigger to our eyes. Our understanding of them and our perception of them, of their majesty, has been enlarged, and therefore, our capacity to delight in them has become greater. Well, that's the way it is with the Lord. When we praise him, when we magnify the Lord, we are giving him the glory that a person of his greatness, of his worth, deserves. We cannot make him any larger than he is, but we're saying, may your name loom large in our hearts and in the world. Be magnified, O God. Now, why does Mary magnify the Lord? Look at verse 48, if you will. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Here's what prompts her enthusiasm, and here's where we find the basis of her praise. And again, just like Elizabeth, you get a sense of the, 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 the sheer wonder she has that she should find herself as an object of his grace, that a woman of her station should know the Lord's kindness, his smile, his blessing, his love, that she should find a place in the divine counsel of the will of God. He's looked on the, on, on the humble estate of his servant. So you see those two dynamics that while her view of God is growing bigger, still at the same time, there's a recognition of her own relative insignificance. And that's that's always how the work of God within the heart functions. While our, our view of him, while our estimation of his glory and grandeur grows large, it crowds out self. It crowds out self-love. It gives way to humility. You see that wonderful lopsidedness of his gracious activity. He who is mighty has done great things for me. Who does the God of all of the universe act on behalf of? What kind of person finds himself on the receiving end of his glorious strength? Me! Me, of all people. This one young woman says, he has done great things for me. Do you know something of that? Do you know something of what she is speaking of? That that mesmerized sense of gratitude and awe before the living God. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain for me who him to death pursued? Oh, the mercy of God. The greatness of God towards sinners. How do you put into terms the kind of privilege it is to be counted among the people of God? How do you respond to something like this? Take a cue from Mary, and holy is his name. Holy is his 
name. You simply bless the name of God, the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, the one who dwells not only in the high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and of lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Now, friends, if you look at verse 50 with me, you see that the field of view begins to broaden. It says, and, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Church, do you see what he's saying? What she's saying? This is very, very good news. This is good news for us. It tells us that we're not just reading a historical account. It tells us that this is something that has bearing on our lives today. He who is mighty has done great things for me and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. She's saying what God has done for me functions as a kind of harbinger of what he is going to do on a great, uh, much bigger scale. The arrival of Jesus Christ has corporate implications. She is using salvific, eschatological language when she talks about the impact of Christ's arrival. To say it another way, Mary is not just rejoicing in what God has done for her. She is rejoicing in what God's dealings in the world mean for mankind in our lost estate. What God has done for her personally anticipates what he's going to do on a cosmic level. That's why she is able to say from now on, generations will call me blessed. And again, Mary is a, a conduit of the grace of God. She is not a repository of his grace. We are not to worship her. We're not to, to venerate her in any way, but it's through her, her willing service that Christ has come. Mary's blessed because she is the vessel that God determined in the counsel of his will to use for the coming of the Messiah to make his mercy known. Now, we talked about themes. Beginning in verse 51, you have this theme of divine reversal that shows up. This stands in a long list of biblical songs that uh, all highlight the way God works to bring down the haughty proud, to lift up the humble poor. Hymns, biblical hymns that underscore the Lord's disposition to act on behalf of the, those who, who would, in, in the eyes of the world, be the, the least likely kinds of candidates. And then at the same time, uh, to work against those who from an earthly plane seem to be absolutely the most threatening. You think of Deborah and Barak's song where jails praised. That woman who drove the tent peg through the head of Sisera, the Canaanite commander. Not what you expect. A woman crushing Israel's enemy, and yet between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. You get the picture? God works in unlikely ways through unlikely candidates to topple 
the kingdoms of this world. And there are many, many others that we could recount. David, uh, Asaph, Moses, more than anyone, it is Hannah, though, that comes to mind. And you heard the passage this morning, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble, they bind on strength. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash sheep to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Mary says here, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Now, I want you to notice that the reversal we're talking about is on two fronts. And first, we see how the Lord acts on behalf of the poor, the distressed, the needy, and the oppressed. It's for the sake of these that the Lord bears his mighty arm. Zephaniah says, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He exalts those of humble estate. He fills the hungry with good things. We're going to see this illustrated again and again in the ministry of the Lord Jesus and the feeding of the 5,000 uh, in the, the teaching that he gives in his parables, which one of you, which father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And then there is the ultimate fulfillment of the Lord's filling the hungry in the institution of the Lord's Supper. This is my body, which is given for you. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Christ comes to lift up the downtrodden, to deliver the oppressed, to let spiritual paupers feast at the table of a king, to feast alongside a kind and a gracious king. And then we see that other front. That he scatters the proud. He brings down the mighty. He sends the rich away empty. Who are the proud? Well, there are those who, uh, over against Mary, they don't fear the Lord. They're taken up with their own interests. They're self-seeking, self-serving, self-consumed self-sufficient. They have no need for the salvation of the Lord. They're haughty. Consider Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. 
So the Lord's dealings among men mean mercy for those who fear him, but it also means ruin for those who resist him. He has brought down the rulers from their thrones. The arrival of Jesus Christ brought with it political implications, and it still does. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, but it will be more bearable in judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. You see what Jesus is saying? Will you raise yourself against the knowledge of Christ, against his lordship, against his authority, you who have known such abundance of God's common grace, you who have seen his mighty works poured out upon you so richly, so abundantly, you shall be brought down. Mary says the rich has has been sent away empty. It's the poor in spirit. The kingdom of God belongs to you. God is going to set every wrong right in his son. And you see the tense that, that Mary uses throughout this poem. It's, it, it's, it's in the past tense. It's in what we call the aorist tense. Repeatedly, Mary says he has. Not he will, but he has. He has brought down. He has helped. What's the significance of that? Well, it serves to to underscore the unchangeableness of God's word, the tenacity and doggedness of his divine purposes, that, that once they are set in motion, there is no turning back. Mary can speak of these things as if they have already been realized, as if they have already been fulfilled. Isn't that wonderful? That is so encouraging to the hearts of God's people. Brothers and sisters, we can stand on the word of God without any hand-wringing. We don't have to fret We don't have to worry. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forevermore. Nothing can thwart the plans of God. Now I want to direct your attention to verse uh, 54 and 55. Mary concludes, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Notice here how Mary draws a connection between this this epic of redemptive history that is now dawning in the incarnation of Jesus Christ with the promise of God that was spoken to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, It says, now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now Mary comes and she says in a manner of speaking, what God is now doing 
through the birth of Jesus Christ is right in league with what he promised to Abraham. What we are seeing is not take two in God's plan of salvation. It's not plan B. It is the fulfillment of God's covenant word spoken to Abraham. The same plan he has always had in place given to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Now I would close by asking, who are his offspring? Who are the offspring of Abraham? Galatians 3 and verse 5 says this, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Friends, inasmuch as your faith is in the promise of the gospel, if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And it's the same mercy and joy and delight and hope that we have seen today that is ours to have in Christ. Would you bow your hearts with me? Our souls magnify you, O Lord. Our spirits rejoice in God, our Savior. Lord, you are God, and there is no other. You are great, and greatly to be praised. Lord, we pray that all the ends of the earth would turn to you and be saved. We ask that you would grant the gift of repentance, even now, so that hearts would turn and be saved, both near and far. Lord, let the hearts of sinners seek your name, seek your face, and, and rejoice to find you to be all that they could ever need and more. Lord, I thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. I thank you that he who is high and holy also showed himself to be meek and lowly, and that the Lord of glory stooped to save sinners who had sinned against him, who had rejected him. God, who had so grievously despised him. Lord, it is our earnest desire that every heart present here today would leap with joy at what Christ's coming means, that every soul would worship you in spirit and truth. Lord, that we would all know the same sense of wonder and humility and submission that Mary knew when she first uttered these words in praise to you. God, I thank you that while Mary's role is unique in many ways, this is not just Mary's song that in so many ways it is our song too, that you have poured out mercy on us, that you continue to show compassion, you tread our iniquities underfoot, you cast all our sins into the depth of the sea, you satisfy the longing soul, the hungry soul, you fill with good things. Lord, give us great longings for you, O God. Strengthen our desire for your grace.
Help us, Lord, to yearn after what is pleasing in your sight. Lord, help us to long for better things than we do. And let us be filled with all the fullness of God, that your name alone might be magnified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.